Well, voice is hopefully a little bit better today. So, a uh, couple things. We have a few things due today. A couple quizzes. Uh, the iTunes quiz uh, is finished up today through 6 o'clock tomorrow. Chapter, uh, the quiz 5. And then the exam corrections, if you were going to do those for, chap for exam 2, were due today. And then this is going to be a relatively quiet week in terms of assignments. And then everything will get hit next week. So if you've got time to work ahead, that's always good. I am going to give you the last two homework assignments now. So you have them. And that way I don't forget and give them to you late or anything. But I have the homework 7 and homework 8. Homework 7, I originally, a couple of these things changed since last time. Oh, wait a second. Tomorrow. Homework 6 tomorrow. Third solar observations tomorrow. Um, you can just g let me look at those in class. I'm going to go over the project itself during class. And I'll just look at them there and give you the credit at the time. So I'll look at them right away and give you the numbers. So you can look at those. Those I'll do tomorrow. And then the exam is pushed off one day because we're finished. It's chapters 13, 14, and 15. Uh, we'll probably be through 13 and 14 today, but I doubt I'll get through all of 15 on Tuesday. So I might, but just to be safe, I was going to put the exam off one day till Thursday. That means there's no rushing through it, trying to make sure I get through all the material before the exam. We'll easily be through it all and then continue onward with chapter 16. But I pushed that off to Thursday, and then the homework 7, which I think I originally had due Thursday, I pushed till due until Monday. Of course, you can turn them in earlier if you want to try to work ahead a little bit on it. And then the solar observations project is Monday. There's an article review on Tuesday and another homework due and all sorts of stuff coming up that last, that last week. So I did change a couple of those dates. But let me give you the homeworks here. I've got homework 7 and 8, which would be 14, 15, and this should be 16, 17. So They'll be due, one will be due next Monday, the other will be due um, probably next Thursday. Yes? Okay, if it's that, you can catch me afterwards. Cause, okay. Yeah. Okay. Oh, sorry. Eight and seven, we'll do them backwards. But yeah, if you have, you know, if you have time this week and you want to get ahead on them, you're welcome to go ahead and and work on those, get them ahead of time. That way you're not, because you have a project and the last article review both do next week as well. So you're not trying to do the homeworks, squeeze the homeworks in, in as well. So any questions on? No, no, no. No, no, no. All right. All right, picture of the day for today then. Mars? You could tell that, right? So it says Mars on it, so that kind of gave it away. I didn't hide that, that it was Mars. Uh, it's actually a picture taken from Mars. This is not taken from one of the rovers. We saw a rover picture not too long ago from the surface of Mars. This is taken by the uh, orbiter, an orbiter around Mars, Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter, orbiting around Mars, taking images of it. And it's actually some interesting streaks that form uh, going down a, down a hill here. And you can see how they kind of go down pretty straight and then just sort of end. Um, what they think this might be is dry ice. So big chunks of dry ice. Dry ice is frozen carbon dioxide. And it's dry ice because it doesn't melt. Right? It goes directly from a solid to a gas. So there's no liquid phase. So if you had large chunks of dry ice on Mars, there's lots of carbon dioxide there, so it's not unreasonable. 
and they were to start flowing down here, they'd begin to what they call sublimate, which is changing directly from a solid into a gas. And that would give them kind of a cushion underneath them and let them kind of slide just straight down here, pretty much straight down. And then eventually, you'd just run out. So they'd eventually end up stopping. They'd just, you'd, the material would fully dissolve into the Martian atmosphere and just add to the carbon dioxide of its atmosphere. So that's one thing they're thinking of and experimenting. Certainly it's not something that can be uh, directly confirmed at this point. All we have is the images of it. But it's something they're trying to do similar experiments with here on Earth and see if they can reproduce this kind of feature that you see. So we're still learning. I mean, even now, Mars has been pretty well, re- relatively well explored. We've had orbiters around it for a long time. We've landed at a number of different areas on Mars. We have the rovers exploring it. We're still learning a lot about uh, little bits and pieces of Mars like this. All right, question, question. No questions. All righty. Then we will go back to chapter 13 and we'll talk about black holes. So I'd given you this last time. This is where we ended up. I'm not going to put it full screen because I'm going to take a break here. I want to do a video of this again in just video of this in just a second. So I'm not going to bring it up full screen quite yet. But we were looking at general relativity and how that explained gravity differently than uh, Newton's gravity. Newton's gravity said there was a force. Earth was pulling on the moon. The moon was pulling on the Earth. And that's what caused the moon to orbit around the Earth. Einstein's relativity works differently. It says that the Earth bends space and time around it. And then the moon follows the natural path formed by the Earth in that deformed space-time deformed by the Earth. And we look at that as a, if you think of it as a, you know, a sheet, hold a sheet taut at all the ends and put something big and heavy on it, it's going to dent down in the center. That's what matter does to space. So the sun does that to space. And the moon does that. The earth does that. The more mass, the bigger that indentation. A black hole becomes very, very dense and a very big indentation. But this has a lot of a number of consequences, one of which is that it will change the path of material. So it will cause objects to orbit each other. But it will also change the path of a light beam. A light beam is going to follow the shortest path. Well, that shortest path from one point to another when you're going through a curved space can actually be a curved path. Sort of like when you travel on the Earth. If you want to fly from New York to Tokyo, You don't fly straight across the United States and straight across the Pacific to Tokyo. You fly up over Canada and Alaska and then back down. That's because that's the shortest path. On a a sphere, that's the shortest path to take is flying that direction. Well, technically, no. The shortest path would be digging a hole through the Earth and going straight from New York to Tokyo. It's a little bit bit less cost, a little bit more cost effective to fly. But that's why you fly up and over. So you see that this flight to Japan is flying up over Alaska. Why? Because that's the shortest path. Well, light is going to take that shortest path too. And that might involve, if it passes close to an object with a lot of gravity, it might involve in its positioning being bent. And that was one of the proofs of general relativity, how we actually verified it, was by watching the light of of a star that passed near the sun. Right? Normally you can't see it. Can't see, the, can't see a star near the sun, right? The sun's there, it's in the way. But during an eclipse, 
total solar eclipse, the sky gets completely dark, the stars come out. And you could actually see stars near the sun. And images were taken, this was done in 1919, uh, shortly after uh, Einstein's general relativity was proposed. And it made a prediction as to what the, how much this light would be deviated as it passed by the sun. And the observations matched up pretty well that the pictures taken during the eclipse showed the stars in a slightly different position than they would have been six months before when the sun was nowhere near those stars. So I'm going to pause that. Let me pull up my little video here and I gotta pause. Restart there and we'll pick back up here. Let me go to, uh, no, start here. We don't need to go back any further. So it gives you an idea of how Einstein explains Gravity, it's different. It's not talking about a force between two objects pulling on each other, but one object or every object deforms space around it and the other objects, the smaller objects, follow the paths that are natural in that now deformed space. Otherwise they'd want to travel in straight lines as Newton said. They want to travel in a straight line. If you're far away from this source of gravity, they would travel in nice straight lines. The, the, the space is not very deformed only when you get close to something that is very, very massive. The sun, you know, the earth for the moon orbiting around it, a black hole even bigger, where you have this very immense gravitational well here that will really significantly deviate the paths of particles and light around it. So, what do we have if we're, we're near a black hole? First of all, once you get a little bit away from the black hole, the gravity is no different than anything else. So if we took the sun today and crushed it down to a black hole, just took all the material in the sun, smashed it down to, what I think I gave you the number last time, about three kilometers. Could take all the material in the sun down to about three kilometers. We wouldn't notice the difference here, gravitationally. Get a little dark, get a little bit cold, but in terms of gravity, it would not be any different. The Earth would not be sucked into the sun if the sun were suddenly to turn into a black hole right now. Still wouldn't be good for us because we're losing our source of energy, losing our source of heat, losing our source of light, but it would not just suck in any more material than the sun would itself. So it would not be any more dangerous. It's only these special gravitational effects are only noticeable when you get very, very close to a black hole. So if you were to get several kilometers away from it, if it's three kilometers for the sun, and you were to get 10 or 15 kilometers away from that black hole, then you'd start to notice these the, the more intense gravitational effects. When you're at the distance of the Earth, you know, 93 million miles away, you don't notice, you don't notice, you wouldn't notice the difference. So, for example, there is a black hole at the center of our galaxy, probably about two or three million times the mass of the sun, so not just a little black hole, but a gigantic black hole. It doesn't suck in all the material from around it. The galaxy and material in the galaxy still orbits around it just as it would if it were just regular material in there. So what would happen if you got close to a black hole? Well, remember we talked about tides. Tides said that the tides were formed on the Earth because the moon pulled a little bit more on one side than it did on the other. The tides on some of the other, the tides are some of the other planets. So you'd get that when one side is pulled on more than the other. Well, eventually, if you've got a strong enough gravitational force and you get an object close enough to it, so 
black hole, our artist's conception here of a black hole with material being pulled into it, if you pull it strong enough on this side compared to this side to overwhelm the structural integrity of it, right? it's got some amount of strength, something that's going to keep it together. You know, it's bound together. But if I pull more on this side than on this side with a force greater than what's holding that, that object together, it'll rip it apart. So as you went into a black hole, the planet in this case would be shredded and parts of it would start coming in first from this side and then later the entire thing would be swept in. If you were to go in, you know, go in feet first, you'd end up stretched and elongated. It would pulling your feet harder than it's pulling on your head and would eventually stretch you out and rip you apart as you were going into the black hole. So can't really travel into a black hole, certainly not a small one. Different, different with some of, the more, some of the bigger ones, but a small black hole meaning something like the size of the sun, you'd get torn apart before you even got inside that Schwarzschild radius, inside that event horizon that we talked about. So you'd never make it in that close. For a larger black hole, it's actually possible that you can cross into it before you get to see all these effects. So then you can actually get into it. You still can't get out. You can cross in and explore the black hole, but you can't get out. You can't send any information out. There's nothing else that you can do once you get in there except make that one-way journey eventually down towards that point, that singularity at the center of the black hole. Now the other thing is this is how we see a black hole. The black hole itself is invisible. It doesn't emit any, any radiation of any kind, so we cannot see it. So no matter how I want to go look for it, it's not emitting any radio waves, it's not emitting any uh, visible light, it's not emitting any x-rays, it's not emitting any gamma rays. So we can't see that, but we can see material as it enters the black hole, as it comes close. It heats up to very high temperatures, so this gets heated up to extremely high temperatures, and that's what we really see. That's how we detect the black hole is through emission of material around it as that material spirals into the black hole. So that will actually heat it up. That will cause it to radiate as it's tearing it apart and that will emit an immense amount of energy and allow us to see the black hole indirectly. We're not seeing anything coming from the black hole. We're seeing the effects caused by the black hole. Now. If we get close, we also see a couple of other things. As you get very close to a strong source of gravity, it changes how clocks run. And that clock doesn't just mean a mechanical clock. That means any kind of clock, a biological clock. Um, you know, anything else that would work, that would, could, keeps any kind of time. Essentially, as you get very, very close to that event horizon, very, very close to the edge of the black hole, the time slows down. So time goes slower and slower. That works here. That's something you can measure on Earth. Not you yourself, but you know, scientifically with very accurate clocks. You can have a very accurate clock at the base of a skyscraper and one at the top and you can measure that there's a difference in how fast those clocks run. Are you going to be measuring it in seconds? Minutes? No. You're going to be measuring it in milliseconds? Uh, microseconds, nanoseconds, it's incredibly small amounts, but we have accurate enough clocks to be able to actually measure that shift predicted by general relativity. Now that's with the Earth. The Earth is a very small source of gravity, pretty big for us, but you know, speaking of black holes, it would be incredibly tiny. If you get close to a black hole, you can get to the point where it goes slower and slower, and that if you could make that trip close to a black hole, so that there's your black hole, 
somewhere at the center, there's some event horizon around it, that's where you can't get out of. If you come inside this, you're stuck. Then you cannot get back out. But you could come close. So you could make a trip here, whip around it, and come back out. There's nothing wrong with that. As long as you stay outside the event horizon, you've got enough energy to power your ship, you can then escape from it. But as you got real close here, your clock would appear to slow down. So your aging would slow down. Meaning that if you made that trip and came back, what maybe took you a, a couple of years, say, to travel around that black hole, might be 50, 100 years to someone outside. So while you might have only aged a year or two as you went close to that black hole, your time slowed down. Someone observing from outside you know, might have aged 100 years or 1,000 years, depending on how the closer you get to the black hole, the faster, the more time slows down and the slower you would then age. Now, you don't notice that. It's not like you're going to be in that ship noticing it and feeling like you're talking slow because everything is slowed down. So to you, you're not going to notice it until you get out and compare to someone else how much time has passed. But you're not going to feel like you're walking around in a daze or that everything's going really, really slow. You're not going to notice the difference. To you, time is going normally and everybody else is zipping through. You know, their clocks are going super fast. You know, their hands are spinning around. Like they do in the movies, their hands are spinning around covering hours and you know, seconds. So the actual observer would never notice the difference until you got out. When you came back and you went to meet your friends and found out that they died you know, 50, 100 years ago, depending on how long you were gone. And everybody else would be long since gone. Now, one of the things that we call this is that you also observe a redshift. Now remember we had redshift when we were moving at high velocities. You can also get a redshift out of a gravitational field. So when you've got the very strong gravitational field of a black hole, you can also get a redshift. Now that not, has nothing to do with the motion. It only has to do with the, with the light trying to escape from gravity. When light tries to escape from gravity, well, when anything tries to escape from gravity, you know, we throw it up, throw it up in the air, gravity pulls it back down. I throw it at some speed. It slows down until it stops, and then it comes back down. So it loses energy in the gravitational field by slowing down as it reaches that top point. Light trying to escape from gravity can't do that. Right? Light can't slow down. It always travels at the speed of light. That's what Einstein told us. It always goes at the speed of light. So the only way a light wave can lose energy as it's trying to escape from the black hole is to have its wavelength change. Actually have a switch to longer wavelengths. Longer wavelengths, less energy. So you could be emitting lots of gamma rays from close to the black hole, from all that material spiraling into it, as those work their way out and try to escape from this gravity, they're going to be converted, to, they'll be stretched out into x-rays, to ultraviolet, to visible light, to infrared, even to radio, depending on how close to the black hole they were occurring. So again, these are things that we'd see if you're very close to a very strong source of gravity. You're not going to notice these significantly on the Earth. Yes, you can measure some of these. You can measure some of the time slowing down because we have clocks that can measure times to you know, nanoseconds accurately. But it's nothing that you're ever going to notice. You're not going to live a longer time by spending your days you know, at the bottom floor of a skyscraper than spending your time at the top. You know, if it were 100 years, it might make a difference of you know, a millionth of a second or a thousandth of a second. 
it's not going to be anything significant here. It's an only when you get close to these very, very strong sources of gravity where you begin to see this. So here's this what I'm kind of just explaining with the uh, light trying to escape. You might form visible light near the black hole. This is a black hole about the size of the sun. So again, all the materials down here at a pinpoint at the center. Event horizon is about three kilometers. Anything within three kilometers of that black hole, you have no information about. You have no way to get any information of, of that. But if you were to send a probe in to explore it and send back signals, if it's sending back you know, a visible signal, it would get stretched and stretched and stretched and might end up being observed as a radio wave, depending on how close to the surface of the black hole you emitted it. So you could get the radio, you could get information as that probe got closer and closer to the black hole. It would keep sending you back information until it crosses the event horizon. Once it crosses that, the signals never get back to you. No information can escape once you get inside that black hole, at least based on our current physics. Now there could be other things that we don't completely understand. And you see the science, so you know, wormholes, you can get into the black hole and do something and come back out in another spot of space or in another time. So what really goes on in there is something we can't say because our physics just is not understand what works and how things work inside of a black hole. But we understand what works outside of it. Once you get inside there, pretty much anything is game. You, know, it's, you can do about anything you want. And in fact, once you get inside a black hole, you know, time travel is possible. Well, time travel is always possible. Right now, you know, we're traveling through time at one second per second forward direction only. So technically, we're always traveling through time, but only in one direction. If you got inside a black hole, space and time get so twisted up that you can easily travel in time. So you can go backward and forward in time just like we travel backward and forward in space. So I can, well, I can walk to one side of the room, I can walk back to the other side of the room. If you were inside the event horizon of a black hole, you can go back 10 seconds in time, forward 10 seconds in time. But now your direction is confined. You're confined to move only in one direction towards the center of that black hole. So you can move, you can, you can move in time, but you can't get back out of it. So you can change your, your, your time now. Your time is now flexible as space is out here. You can move all different directions in space. Once you get inside the event horizon, your spatial direction is now fixed. You can only go in one direction. You can only head towards the center of the black hole. You can't get away from that. But your time now is so twisted up that you can travel any way you like in time. So very interesting things go on and leaves a lot of things open you know, for as our understanding can improve once we can really try to understand a black hole even better. You know, outside, we're pretty good. Once it gets down here and you're trying to work with gravity of such small objects, all of our, our physics that we understand really breaks down. So what's inside a black hole? Nobody knows. Right? I can't tell you what's inside a black hole. You can make a black hole out of anything if you condense it all down small enough to a small enough. Um, the theory says that it will collapse down until it's a radius of zero. So you know, take the mass of the sun and just keep condensing it down. It gets down to the size of this room. It gets down to the size of the desk. It gets down to the size of you know, the stapler. It gets down to the side of a pinpoint. And that would become infinite density. There's nothing that's known that could stop the collapse. Or is there something else that will stop the collapse that we don't understand yet? So 
Is that really what happens? That is a good question. But the black hole really crushes out a lot of the information. And in fact, the only things we know about a black hole In fact, there's only three pieces of information we can know about it. We can know its mass. How much matter does it have in it? That's something we can determine. We can know its electrical charge. So electrical charge does not get destroyed by the black hole. So if you were to send, you could make a black hole you know, negatively charged if you shot electrons at a at a black hole, you could make it a negatively charged black hole. That information would remain even as the material got crushed out. So the charge does not get lost. And you can know about its spin. The black hole can actually be rotating. <coughs> Excuse me. So there are different types of black holes depending on what kind of things they have. Um, electrical charge, we usually don't worry about very much. Mainly because the electromagnetic force is very strong. And if you were to put a lot of negative charge on this black hole, it's going to attract all the positive charges and neutralize itself very quickly. So usually we look at things like mass. A very simple black hole would be one that's not spinning and just has a certain amount of mass. But you notice what's not there is anything about what it's made up of. We know that it has mass, how much mass it has, but you don't know what it is. Is it hydrogen? And it's all been all that information has been crushed out. Is it helium? Is it carbon? You know, is it peanut butter? You know, take take a solar mass worth of peanut butter and crush it down to a black hole. You can't tell the difference whether it was made of hydrogen or if it was made of peanut butter. You know, in terms of the properties of the black hole, it doesn't care. It doesn't know anything about that information. These are the only three things we can know about a black hole. So while they're very complex objects in some ways, they're also very simple. You don't have to worry about, you know, what's a, you know, what's a black hole? Well, this black hole was made up of hydrogen, or this one was made up of mostly carbon. And how do they behave differently? There's no difference. The mass is going to be this, the mass is the same, the black hole is the same. The spin is the same, the black hole will be the same. But until we can really understand how gravity works on microscopic scales, which we don't, we don't understand how gravity works on such a small scale. What goes on in here is really you know, a big mystery. And if you can even find a black hole, we know there's a big one at the center of our galaxy. You still can't even send a probe in to explore and see because the information will never come back out to you. All right. Now, how do we know black holes exist? Right? We can't detect them. We can only measure, they only have certain properties that we can look at. But one way we can look for black holes, a black hole could form in, if you call a hypernova explosion, right? like a supernova but only bigger and formed a black hole. Well, there are some examples where we see um, objects like this star. Uh, just got some catalog name up here, but we see a star here. And if we zoom in on this area, imagine this box, right in the middle of that box there's a very strong x-ray source. Well, that would be right about in here, right about the middle of that box. There's nothing there. It's not the star that's doing it. This star would be way off to the edge over here. There's nothing in there that accounts for that x-ray source. But that x-ray source could be a black hole 
that we observe you know, collecting matter. It could be gathering matter and emitting lots of x-rays from around it. So creating a lot of high energy, uh, high energy uh, photons and some of those are able to escape and we could detect it as x-rays. X-rays coming from empty space is a pretty good sign of a black hole. We also see objects that apparently are orbiting around nothing. Right? We can see this star and we can see how it's moving, but there doesn't seem to be anything around it. That is likely, once we can determine masses, we can actually determine that to be a black hole. So there are several candidates that we have that we have detected that fit all the properties needed to be a black, to be a black hole. That they would have sufficient amount of mass and that they're producing a lot of energy in an unusual manner. There's no type of star that we know of that would produce this many x-rays. Um, a neutron star could, in some cases, if it's collecting matter, give, we go off those bursts of x-rays, but a black hole would do it on a very regular, a regular basis. So one big candidate, one of the, one of the best ones, is called Cygnus X1. <coughs> Cygnus X1 is an x-ray source in the constellation of Cygnus, how it gets its name. In fact, it was the first x-ray source dis- discovered in that constellation. And a very strong black hole candidate. It has a visible star we can see that's about 25 times the mass of the Sun. Now remember if we see objects orbiting each other, so even if we see this star orbiting something and these objects orbiting around, even if we can't see this one, we can still see this one orbiting and we can determine its period and its orbital radius how how far away they're orbiting, how long it takes to make an orbit, we can determine that. And then we can go back and use Kepler's third law. Or here, let's do the sum of the masses. M1 plus M2. Orbital radius cubed divided by the period squared. We can determine the masses now. So I can figure out what the mass is, or at least the total mass. A visible star, we can get an estimate. We can sort of get a guess as to how much mass it has in it, just based on the properties of the star. So if we do the calculation, you find out that the total mass is about 35 times the mass of the sun. Okay, so how much mass is left over? How much mass is the visible star? Well, if it's a main sequence star, we can make some sort of estimates, and we can get a pretty good idea that it's about 25 times the mass of the sun. So 35 minus 25. Right? We can account for 25 of those solar masses. means there's about 10 masses left over that are unaccounted for. That this x-ray source must be about 10 solar masses. And last time I think we did, I gave you the estimate for a neutron star that said maybe three times the mass of the sun was its limit. Beyond that it would crush down to nothing. So an x-ray source, something that's 10 solar masses, cannot be any object that we know of. Cannot be a white dwarf star that has a limit of about 1.4 times the mass of the sun. Cannot be a neutron star which is about three times the mass of the sun. So a black hole physically that we understand is the only other thing that it could possibly be. Now a couple of other things that we see is that we seem to be seeing gas flowing. So gas is moving away from this star, the visible companion, and heading towards this black hole. So it seems like it's sucking off some matter. That would account for some of the x-rays that we see as material is pulled off of that star towards the black hole. 
And we also see very short time scale variations. Very short time scale variations means that it's changing very quickly. In fact, things that'll change in you know, minutes or seconds, it'll get brighter or fainter. That gives you a limit as to how big the object can be. If the object is as big as the Earth's orbit, right? if it's one of those real big stars, say that's the size of the Earth's orbit, that would take light about 16 minutes to travel from one side to the other. If it takes 16 minutes to travel from one side to the other, that means it can't vary in brightness in less than 16 minutes. Because by the time you get the information from this side, the light from this side is still getting to you. It would take at least 16 minutes. So the shorter time scale variations we see tell us that the object has to be very small. That it must only take you know, fractions of a second for light to be able to go across this disk around whatever object it is. So it has to be something incredibly small. So Cygnus X1 is one of our best, one of the best candidates for a solar mass black hole. And there are several others as well that have similar properties where you can determine the masses and figure out that there's, you know, several, there's enough mass undetermined to be able to uh, say with pretty well, with certainty that it is a uh, black hole. So here's, here it is again in the visible light and the x-rays. This is the one I showed you there. Again, it's really looking at empty space. When you see these x-rays coming from empty space near a star, again, this is this box zoomed in. So you're looking right about at the center of this box, which is somewhere right about in here. And visible light, this is a visible light image. So we're seeing different stars. Here's the main star. Here's some other stars that are around or in the background or in the foreground. Here's some, maybe some distant galaxies in here as well, but nothing really close to that location that can account for the x-rays that we see. They do that twice. So there's several others, as I said, similar characteristics that you can, you can detect the x-ray sources, you can um, measure their masses, you can use Kepler's laws, be able to measure their masses and find out that there's just too much mass there to be a white dwarf to be a neutron star, and that it has to be a black hole. Now those are for small black holes. There are also bigger ones. And we'll see these as we start talking about galaxies over the coming chapters, that there are supermassive black holes that are about a million times the mass of the sun. In fact, a million solar mass black hole would be a rather small black hole for the center of a galaxy. That would actually be a tiny one with about a million times the mass of the sun. There would be others that would be um, many, many times larger than that. The one at the center of our galaxy, maybe about three or four million times the mass of the sun. And there are other ones that go up to tens or hundreds of millions of times the mass of the sun. So some of these that we'll look at in coming chapters are even much bigger than what we've talked about here. All right, so last slide here is sort of an interesting one, it's intermediate black hole, intermediate sized black holes. It's pretty easy to explain a uh, solar mass size black hole, a couple times the mass of the sun. That's a supernova explosion that left a black hole behind. We can explain the larger ones, things that are millions of times the mass of the sun. But where do these middle sized ones come from? These are much more massive than a star would ever be able to get. You can't get a star that's 100 times the mass of the sun. 
let alone have it leave a remnant behind that is that big. You know, 10 solar masses is more reasonable. And by the time you get to the center of a galaxy, things are so condensed that you would get millions of solar masses. So now seeing things that are 100 to 1,000 solar masses, some that have been begun to be discovered, are really more interesting. So are they for smaller galaxies? They just haven't built up as much material yet. Are they relatively young? Are they going in the direction of forming? Would several of these you know, form together? And you get 1,000 of these eventually over time to form a million solar mass black hole? But not something that we really understand very well at this time, except that we can detect them and that they do emit a lot of x-rays, which is what these images are showing. But they're sort of in that in-between phase that is not easy to explain from what I've talked about so far. Small ones like the sun, sun-sized black holes, relatively easy to explain as the end state of a star. Larger ones, easy to explain as material at the center of our galaxy, much harder to explain these intermediate ones. All right, so let's go back over and summarize chapter 13. Um, we talked about neutron stars and black holes. Uh, supernova may leave behind one or the other. Actually, we talked about a hypernova as perhaps leaving behind the black hole, a more intense explosion that might leave behind a black hole. Supernova typically leaving behind a neutron star, which are extremely dense, about the size of a city, maybe 10 kilometers, 6 miles across, spinning very quickly, a second, several times a second, hundreds of times a second. Uh, so whipping around extremely fast and very, very strong magnetic fields. Because they have those intense magnetic fields, they funnel things out in a beam and they look like a lighthouse. They'll send that beam come out as it passes by and points in our direction. If it happens to point in our direction, we'll get a burst of energy from it for an instant. Then it will go away and then it will come back the next time around. So that's how we detected the first pulsar and the first neutron stars was because they were blinking on and off in radio waves. And we'd see a pulse coming you know, every second or every fraction of a second. And that's similar to the effect of a lighthouse. If that beam doesn't point right at you, you, know, you don't get the great burst of light that you'd get otherwise. You might be able to, neutron stars can behave like a nova. A nova was a white dwarf star collecting matter from a companion. A neutron star can collect uh, material from a companion as well. But because of the more intense gravity, the neutron star will actually form an X-ray burst. So instead of bursting invisible light, it'll burst out in X-rays and give a lot of energy that way. The other thing that it can do is if it's coming in the right direction, it can speed up that neutron star. So it can get it spinning faster and faster and faster. And that's when you get the things we call the millisecond pulsars, things that are spinning hundreds of times every second reaching the very limit before that thing would not be you know, structurally stable and would actually tear itself apart. Gamma ray bursters we do detect. We detect them from all over the universe, possibly due to two neutron stars colliding, coming together and colliding and giving a burst of gamma rays, or to a hypernova, which is one thing we think could form a black hole. Hypernova, if you recall, was when the explosion started. So the star started to collapse as it reached the end of its life. It became unstable. And as it started to expand out, there was just too much material there and it stalled. So while it's trying to explode, you've got such a big blanket on it that it couldn't, it couldn't explode and it stalled. Well, if it stalls, that material condenses back down, collapses into a black hole, which now starts accreting matter, grabbing matter, giving off lots of energy, and reignites the explosion. 
So hypernova is one of the ways we think you can actually form a black hole. Now, what we get with the core remnant is if it's more than about three solar masses, there's nothing that can stop its collapse. So as that core starts to collapse, you get one, one chance to stop it when the electrons push up against each other, put all the matter as close as you possibly can. Uh, it's a white dwarf star. Get it all the matter to crush it down until those electrons are almost touching. The electrons are pushing itself apart. That provides some sort of pressure that holds it up. At more than about 1.4 times the mass of the sun, that doesn't work anymore. The electrons get crushed, and you crushed all those electrons into the nucleus, and that, block, uh, that object collapses from something the size of the Earth to something the size of a city. That'll hold up to about three solar masses. If you put more than three solar masses worth of material there, then there's nothing else that can stop the collapse, that we know of at least, and it will collapse down into a black hole. And then what we went over today, we talked about general relativity a little bit and reviewed that. That's the way we can describe black holes. We can describe how they work outside the black hole. General relativity doesn't really explain how, what happens inside the black hole. So that's where our physics breaks down. And even what Einstein gave us does not help us inside the black hole. We need a theory of gravity that goes beyond Einstein to explain how gravity works when you're talking about a point as it's collapsed to that kind of point. And it also behaves, you have an object that can behave like a subatomic particle and subject to the laws of particle physics and quantum mechanics, but that has this intense gravity as well. And trying to combine those two is a field of research trying to be able to understand and might give us a better idea of what really goes on within this black hole. But for right now, anything that gets within this event horizon that's what we call the surface of the black hole. Not a solid surface as anything we think about. But anything that gets within that is then trapped. So the spaceship comes in and it crosses that event horizon. Well, it can move around, but it's just slowly going to, the best, it's slowly going to spiral down into that singularity. If you stay outside of it, if you don't cross that, then as long as you've got enough energy, you can escape and get back out and get away with whatever information. But again, that's why we call this the event horizon. We can know what goes on outside it. We can know nothing about any events that go on inside that, that sphere. Inside that, we could get in there. If we wanted to go in and explore it, we could do that and learn. But we can't get the information back out. So under, at least under current physics. So if something else comes up that explains how you can use a black hole as a wormhole, that you can get into this and then get back out, then we could actually learn more about a black hole that way. And the Schwarzschild radius is really just that, that radius is that distance, how far it is from the center to the event horizon. So how big the black hole is. For the sun, that was about three kilometers. For the Earth, it was a couple centimeters. You have to congest the whole Earth down to just a few centimeters. And you could make it a black hole. And let's see, I have one more here. A distant observer. If you're getting close to a black hole, uh, would see the object entering it, extreme uh, gravitational redshift. So the light is going to be changed. If you're sending out a radio signal, it's going to get stretched to longer and longer wavelengths. If you're sending out a visible light signal, it's going to get stretched to longer wavelengths into the infrared, into the radio. If you're sending off x-rays, they're going to get stretched off towards visible light or maybe uh, infrared. And it will also slow down time. So. As objects are in an intense gravitational field, their time will actually slow down. And again, that's for everything. So 
Not just that you'd, you know, your watch would run slower, but your biological clock would run slower, your heart would beat, everything would change. So you would really be running everything at a much slower time because of that gravitational field. Further away, you would not be able to notice those effects, and the observer going through them wouldn't notice them. Because your clock would slow down, your heart rate, would, if everything slows down, do you know the difference? Right? You're not going to be able to tell the difference. If everything slows down at the same amount, you're never going to be able to tell the difference. How we detect black holes is by looking for the energy that's being emitted. Not from the black hole itself. Again, once you get inside this event horizon, nothing can be known. But around this event horizon, you can actually collect material. So outside of this, you could get a disk of material around it. And it could be spiraling in as this material spirals in. It gets heated up to very high temperatures, and the material out here can actually, this material can actually be the stuff that will glow. So this material will actually be heated up to high temperatures and will emit X-rays or gamma rays, as a lot of that material that's spiraling in towards the black hole, before it gets there, before it crosses that line, can actually emit a lot of energy that we can still see. And that's how we saw that X-ray source around a nearby star. And several of those have been found. We've talked about X-ray uh, black hole candidates that are in other uh, around other stars, or about black hole candidates that are at the center of our galaxy. We'll come back to that a little bit more over the coming couple of chapters as we talk about um, galaxies, and we'll come back. Black holes will come back as something we'll talk about again. Again, uh, still have a little bit more to talk about those in this course. So, questions? Thirteen. Oh, no, no, no.